That's it. That was your cue. What was my cue? That right there. You're supposed to say, Masterpiece Audio Theatre Presents. Masterpiece Audio Theatre Presents. That's right. Then you say, Myths from Around the World. Myths from Around the World. Okay, and a stranded in the middle of nowhere podcast. A stranded in the middle of nowhere podcast? Well, where are we? How are we going to get home? I'm going to get scared. Everything will be all right, trust me. This is a continuation from the Dog Days of Podcasting 2022. Hello and welcome to Masterpiece Audio Theatre. I am your host, Man Jackman Chenevik. We here around the campfire have decided to give you an extra long episode for the Canadian Thanksgiving weekend. So we hope you will join us around the fire for Aladdin and his wonderful lamp, part 11. Enjoy. As soon as she was gone, the Sultan dismissed the audience and repaired to his daughter's palace, where he found Bedr el-Badur examining the jewels in a state of utmost delight and singing a song of their wondrous beauty. Then, when the Sultan told her that they came from her new bridegroom, she clapped her hands with joy and demanded to know what he was like and where was his splendid kingdom. I know not, said the Sultan in answer. But he cometh to me shortly, and then he will reveal to me his state. Meanwhile, O my daughter, do thou regard him in the sparkling light of these wondrous jewels, and know that, while he regardeth them not as worthy of thy little finger, his love for thee must be great. Now Aladdin, when he saw his mother returning swift-footed on the wings of joy, knew that good tidings came with her. But before he could speak, his mother burst in upon him and embraced him, crying, Oh, my son, thy heart's wish is fulfilled. This very night thou art to wed the sultan's daughter, and so it is proclaimed before all the world. And so it is proclaimed before all the world. Then did Aladdin rejoice that his expectations were fulfilled, and was continuing to rejoice when his mother addressed him suddenly. Nay, she said, I have not told thee all. The sultan bids thee go to him immediately, for he desires to see his son-in-law. Now how shalt thou approach the sultan in thy merchant's garment? However, I have done all I can for thee, and it is now thine own affair. So saying, she withdrew to rest a little, and Aladdin, having blessed her, retired to his chamber and brought forth the lamp. With a set purpose in his mind, he rubbed it, and at once the slave appeared. Thou knowest me. What is thy desire? I wish, answered Aladdin, that thou take me to a bath which has no equal in all the kingdoms, and provide me there with a change of raiment of resplendent glory, richer than any the Sultan has ever worn. No sooner had he spoken than the Afrit bore him away in his arms, and deposited him in the bath, the likes of which no king could compass nor any man describe. Everything was there which delighted the eye, and not the least of the wonders of this splendid bath was a hall whose walls were encrusted with jewels. Seeing that there was no one in attendance, Aladdin clapped his hands and immediately came slaves to wait upon him. 
and one with marvelous strength and dexterity of hand washed him and manipulated his limbs until he was altogether refreshed. Then he sought the jeweled hall and found there, in place of his merchant's garb, a set of robes that exceeded all imagination. These he put on and smiled to himself as if he looked down on kings, for, indeed, the robes were more than royal. And when he had drunk the sherbets and the coffee which the slaves brought him, he submitted to the completion of his dress by delicate unguents and perfumes, and then went forth. At the door of the bath he was met by the Afrit in waiting, who took him up and bore him in a flash to his home. "'Hast thou still some further need?' asked the slave of the lamp, about to vanish. "'Yea,' replied Aladdin. "'Bring me here a chief of Mamelukes, with forty-eight in his train, twenty-four to precede me, and twenty-four to follow after, and see that they have splendid horses and equipment, so that not even the greatest in the world can say this is inferior to mine.' For myself, I want a stallion, which cannot be equaled among the Arabs, and his housings must be valuable for such as one can purchase only in dreams. And to each Mameluk give a thousand gold pieces, and to the chief Mameluk ten thousand, for we go to the Sultan's palace and would scatter largesse on the way. Wait, also, twelve maidens of unequal grace and loveliness in person to attire and accompany my mother to the Sultan's presence. And look you, whatever grace and beauty is lacking in my person, supply it to me on my natural plan of being. See to it, O slave of the lamp. It is already done, said the slave of the lamp, and, vanishing on the instant, he reappeared at once at the doorway of the house, leading a noble white stallion gorgeously equipped, while behind came the twelve damsels and the forty-nine memelooks on magnificent chargers. The damsels were bearing rich stuffs in their arms, so Aladdin, guessing that these were the robes for his mother, led them into her, that she might be arrayed in a manner befitting the mother-in-law of a princess. Then he sent the chief Mameluk post-haste to the palace to announce his speedy arrival. The Mameluk rode like the wind and soon returned in a full gallop, saying as he drew rein, O oh, my lord, the sultan expecteth thee every moment. Then Aladdin, having seen that the maidens had properly arrayed his mother, mounted his steed and set out for the palace with the Mameluks before and behind him and his mother following, supported by the maidens. It was a brave cavalcade that proceeded through the streets and the people watched it in amazement. Is not this the tailor's son? Said one to another. Yeah, with that so, was the reply. But it seems we have never known the truth. For when they saw Aladdin's courtly grace, enhanced as it was by the slave of the lamp, and beheld his Mamelukes scattering gold, they said amongst themselves that he was the son of a potent king of far lands, and had been placed in the tailor's care. For see, his foster mother, magnificently robed, was following. Little did they think, for Aladdin's mother had not gossiped, that all this ravishing splendor was of the lamp, which could work wonders for whosoever possessed it. And the cavalcade filed onwards amid the acclamations and blessings of the people until the palace was reached, and all the way they ceased not to distribute largesse to the people. Now, when the sultan had received word that Aladdin was coming, he informed his nobles and grandees of the meaning of this thing, so that, when Aladdin arrived, there was a vast concourse of people, and all the stateliest of the land were there awaiting his entry. And, as he rode in at the gates, he was received not only by the greatest personages of the sultan's realm, but also by officials high and low, who did him homage and extolled him. 
There was no office too small to be performed for him, no word of welcome too great to greet him. As the sun rises in glory upon a waiting world, so came Aladdin to the palace. At the door of the hall of the audience, he dismounted, while hands held his stirrups that had never performed such an office before. The sultan was seated on his throne, and immediately he saw Aladdin. He arose and descended and took him to his breast, forbidding all ceremony on so great an occasion. Then he led him up affectionately and placed him on his right hand. In all this, Aladdin forgot not the respect due to kings. Forbidden to be too humble, he was not too lofty in his bearing. He spoke. Oh, my lord, this Hulton, king of the earth and the heavens, dispenser of all good, truly thou hast treated me graciously in bestowing upon me thy daughter, the lady Medra el Know, O king, that when I consider her grace and loveliness which cometh from thee, I feel unworthy, like one of the meanest slaves. Yet, since thou hast so honored me by thy felicity, I cannot bring to thy feet a slave's humility, for by the gift of this lovely lady, thy daughter, thou hast raised me above my fellows beneath thy sheltering wing. Wherefore, while my tongue knoweth not the words to thank and extol thee for the magnitude of thy favor, it can still pray fervently for the prolonging of thy life. O king of the age, be gracious and hear me yet further, for I have a request to make. Will thou grant me a sight whereupon to build a palace, unworthy as it may prove, for the comfort and happiness of thy daughter, the lady Medra el now, while Aladdin was thus speaking with courtly grace and diction, the sultan's attention was divided between his ears and eyes. While listening to Aladdin's words, he was noting his more than princely raiment, his beauty and his perfection of form, his magnificent retinue of mamelukes, and the royal richness of everything that appertained to him, all following his lordly wake without compulsion, as though it were natural form of long custom so to do. And he was bewildered and wondered greatly that this son of a thousand kings should have been heralded by a woman of the people, saying, forsooth, she was his mother. And while he was wondering, Aladdin's mother approached, apparelled in robes more costly than any of his own queen's wardrobe, and supported humbly and decorously by her twelve maidens of surpassing loveliness. At this, while the Grand Vizier came nigh to death with envy, the Sultan on a sudden turned to Aladdin and embraced and kissed him, saying, My son, my son, how hast thou hid from me so long? Then the Sultan conversed with Aladdin and was greatly charmed with his courtliness and eloquence. Anon, he ordered the musicians to play, and together they listened to the music in the utmost content. Finally, he arose, and, taking Aladdin by the hand, led him forth into the palace banqueting hall, where a splendid supper was awaiting them with the lords of the land standing ready in their proper order of degree. Yet above them all sat Aladdin, for he was at the sultan's right hand, and while they ate, the music played and the merry wit prevailed, and the sultan drew near to Aladdin in their talk and saw from his grace, his manner of speech, and his complacence, that indeed he must have been brought up and nurtured among kings. Then, while they conversed, the sultan's heart went out with joy and satisfaction to Aladdin, and the whole assemblage saw that it was not as it had been with the vizier's son. The grand vizier himself would have retired early, had it not been that his presence was required for the marriage ceremony. 
As soon as the banquet was over and the tables cleared away, the Sultan commanded the vizier to summon the Cadiz and the witnesses, and thus the contract between Aladdin and the Lady Bedra el Badur was duly executed. Then, without a warning word, Aladdin arose to depart. Wherefore, O my son, said the Sultan, thy wedding is duly contracted, and the festivities are about to begin. Yea, O my lord the king, replied Aladdin, and none rejoices at that more than I. But if it please thee, it is my thought to build a palace for the Lady Bedra Madur, and if my love and longing for her to be anything, thou mayest rest assured that it will be completed so quickly as to amaze thee. At this, the Grand Vizier tugged the Sultan's sleeve, but received no attention. It is well, said the Sultan to Aladdin. Choose what sight seemeth best to thee, and follow thine own heart in the matter. See, this open space by my palace. What thinkest thou, my son? O king, replied Aladdin, I cannot thank thee enough, for it is the summit of my felicity to be near thee. Then Aladdin left the palace in the same royal manner as he had approached it, with his mamelukes proceeding and following, and again the people praised and blessed him as he passed. When he reached his house and he left all other affairs in the hands of his chief mameluk with certain instructions and went into his chamber. There he took the lamp and rubbed it. The slave appeared on the instant and desired to know his pleasure. No slave, answered Aladdin. I have a great task for thee. I desire thee to build me in all haste a palace on a space near the Sultan's Sarai, a palace of magnificent design and construction and filled with rare and costly things. And let it be incomplete in one small respect, so that when the Sultan offers to complete it to match the whole, all the wealth and artifice at his command will not suffice for the task. Oh, my master, replied the Afrit, it shall be done with all speed. I will return when the work is finished. With this, he vanished. It was an hour before dawn when the slave of the lamp returned to Aladdin, and, awakening him from sleep, stood before him. O oh, master of the lamp, he said, the palace is built as thou didst command. It is well, O oh, slave of the lamp, answered Aladdin, and I would inspect thy work. No sooner had he spoken than he found himself being borne swiftly through the air in the arms of the Afrit, who set him down almost immediately within the palace. Most excitedly had the slave done his work. Porphyry, jasper, alabaster, and other rare stones had been used in the construction of the building. The floors were of mosaics, the which to match would cost much wealth and time in the fashioning, while the walls and ceilings, the doors, and the smallest pieces of detail were all such that even the imagination of them could come only to one dissatisfied with the palaces of kings. When Aladdin had wondered at all this, the slave led him into the treasury and showed him his countless bars of gold and silver and gems of dazzling brilliance. Thence to the banqueting hall, where the tables were arrayed in a manner to take one's breath away, for every dish and every flagon were of pure gold or silver, and all the goblets were crusted with jewels. Thence again to the wardrobes, where the richest stuffs of the east were piled in great gold-bound chests, to the extent that baffled the reason. And so from room to room, where everything that met the eye dazzled and captivated it, and all this had been done in a single night. Having surveyed it all, Aladdin knew not what to say, scarcely even what to think. It seemed to him that the most sovereign monarch of all the world could command nothing like this. 
But when the slave led him further and shewed him a pavilion with twenty-four niches thickly set with diamonds and emeralds and rubies, he fairly lost his wits. And the slave took him to one niche, then shewed him how his command had been carried out, in that this was the one small part of the palace that was left incomplete in order to tempt and tax the sultan to finish it. When Aladdin had viewed the whole palace and seen the numerous slaves and beautiful maidens therein, he asked yet one more thing of the Afrit. No slave of the lamp, he said. The work is wonderful, yet it still lacketh an approach from the sultan's palace. I desire, therefore, a rich carpet laid upon the intervening space, so that the Lady Bedra el may come and go upon a splendid pathway of brocade, worked with gold and inwrought with precious stones. I hear and obey, said the slave, and vanished. Presently he returned and led Aladdin to the steps of the palace. Oh, my lord, he said, what thou didst command is done. And he pointed to a magnificent carpet extending from palace to palace. The gold and the precious stones and the brocade gleamed and sparkled in the star's last rays before the rise of dawn. When Aladdin had gazed upon it and wondered at it, the Afrit carried him in the twinkling of an eye back to his own home. Shortly afterwards, when the dawn had arisen, the sultan opened his eyes and, looking forth from his window, beheld a magnificent structure where the day before had been an open space. Doubting the evidence of his senses, he turned himself about and rubbed his eyes and looked again. There, undoubtedly, was a palace more splendid and glorious than any he had ever seen, and there, leading to it, was a carpet, the likes of which he had never trod. And all those who awoke betimes in the sultan's palace observed these wondrous things, and neither they nor the sultan could keep their amazement to themselves. The news of it spread throughout the palace like wildfire, the Grand Vizier came rushing to the Sultan, and, finding him at the window, had no need to tell him the cause of his excitement. What sayest thou, O Vizier? said the Sultan. Yonder stands a palace surpassing all others. Truly Aladdin is worthy of my daughter, since at his bidding such a royal edifice arises in a single night. Then the Vizier's envy found vent. O King, he said, Thinkest thou that such a thing as this could be done save by the vilest of sorcery? Riches and jewels and costly attire are in the hands of mortals, but this, this is impossible! Impossible, said the sultan. Behold! And he pointed towards the palace. There it stands, in the light of day, and thou sayest it's impossible? Verily, O Vizier, it seems thy wits are turned with envy at the wealth of Aladdin. Prate not to me of sorcery. There are few things beyond the power of man in whose treasury are such jewels as those sent to me by Aladdin. At this, the Grand Vizier was silent. Indeed, his excessive envy well nigh choked him, for he saw that the Sultan loved Aladdin greatly. Now, when Aladdin awoke in the morning and knew that he must set forth for the palace, where the nobles and the grandees were already assembling for the wedding celebrations, he took the lamp and rubbed it. The slave appeared on the instant and desired to know his wish. No slave of the lamp, said Aladdin. This is my wedding day, and I go to the sultan's palace. Wherefore, I shall need ten thousand gold pieces. I hear and obey, said the afraid, and vanishing returned on the instant with the gold packed in bags. These he placed before Aladdin, and then, receiving no further command, disappeared. Aladdin called his chief Mameluk and ordered him to take the gold and see that it was scattered among the people on the way to the palace. 
When all was ready, Aladdin mounted his steed and rode through the city, while the Mamelukes before and behind him distributed the largesse all the way. And the people were loud in their praise of his dignity and grace, and loved him greatly for his generosity. Anon, the palace was reached, and there the high officials, who were looking for Aladdin and his train, hastened to inform the Sultan of his approach. On this, the Sultan arose, and going out to the gates of the palace to meet him, embraced and kissed him. Then, taking him by the hand, he led him in and seated him at his right hand. Meanwhile, the whole city was in festivity. Pomp and ceremony went hand in hand with gaiety and mirth. Soldiers and guards kept holiday order in the streets, where youths and bright garland maidens made a merry riot. Within the palace resounded music and singing and the murmurs of happy voices, for this was the nation's day of joy. Anon, the sultan commanded the wedding banquet to be served, and the eunuchs set the tables out with the royal dishes of gold and silver, filled with sumptuous vivans and fruit that might have been cold in paradise. And, when it was all ready, Aladdin sat to the right hand of the sultan, and they, with all the nobles and the foremost in the land, ate and drank. On every hand were honor and goodwill for Aladdin. Everyone was filled with joy at the event, saying that this wedding was as happy as that of the Grand Vizier's son was unfortunate. Aladdin's palace and the space around it were thronged with people of every degree who ceased not to wonder at his resplendent beauty and the fact that it had been built in a single night. May his head survive us all, said some and others. God give him every pleasure, for the verily he deserveth it. When the banquet was over, Aladdin repaired with his mamelukes to his palace to make ready for the reception of his bride, Bedra el Badur. And as he went, all the people thronged him, shouting, God give thee happiness! God bless thee, Tis! And he scattered gold among them. Coming to his palace, he dismounted and went in, and seated himself whilst his attendants bowed before him. And thinking of naught else but his bride, the Lady Bedra el Badur, he commanded them to prepare for her reception, and they did so. Meanwhile, Aladdin looked forth from a window of the palace, and saw the sultan with his horsemen descending into the riding ground. At this he bethought him of his stallion, and commanded his chief man to look accordingly. Then, mounted on his steed and accompanied by his retinue, he galloped down into the riding grounds. There, javelin in hand, he displayed his prowess, and none could stand against him. Bedrail Badur, watching him from a window in her father's palace, felt her heart turn over and over in her bosom, and then, saying within herself, He is my husband and none other, she renounced herself to the exquisite joy of sudden love. At eventime, when the sport and play were over, the princes of the land surrounded Aladdin, for he had become the center of all interest, and accompanied him to the hammam. There he was bathed and perfumed, and when he came forth and mounted his matchless steed, he was escorted through the city by guards and emirs with drawn swords, while all the people thronged in procession before and behind and on every side, beating drums and playing musical instruments and singing for the very excess of joy and revel. And when he reached his palace, he dismounted and entered and seated himself. And all the nobles and grandees submitting to the ruling of his chief Mameluk were seated also, each according to his degree. The refreshments were served without stint, even to the multitude of the gates. And Aladdin arose in the midst of this and beckoned to his chief Mameluk. Is there any gold? he asked. Yea, answered the Mameluk. Some thousands of bases. Then, said Aladdin, scatter it among the people who thronged the gates. And thus it was at Aladdin's palace. Meanwhile, the sultan, on returning from the riding ground, commanded an escort to conduct the Lady Bedrail Badur to her husband's abode. 
Upon this, the captain of the guards, the officers of the state and nobles, well equipped, were mounted in readiness and waiting at the door of Bedra Elbador's apartments. Presently, preceded by female slaves and eunuchs, bearing light tapers set in jeweled candlesticks, came forth a vision of liveliness. Bedra Elbador, aflame with love for Aladdin, appeared on the threshold like a pure white bird about to fly into space. All too slow was the procession that escorted her to Aladdin's palace. The stately pomp and splendor accorded not with the beating of her heart. She saw not Aladdin's mother, nor the beauteous damsels, nor the mounted guards, nor the emirs, nor the nobles. Her only thought was Aladdin, for her heart was consumed with love. Thus from the Seraglio to Aladdin's palace, where Bedra Elbadur, as one floating in a dream, was taken to her apartments and arrayed for presentation to the court assembled. And of all that court and the multitude of people, the only one who had no voice was Aladdin. For, when he looked upon his bride and her surpassing loveliness, he was refret of speech or thought, and stood silent before a joy too great for a tongue to tell. At last, when the presentation was over, Aladdin sought the bridal chamber, where he found his mother with Bedrael Vadur, and there in the apartment, all sparkling with gold and precious stones, his mother unveiled her, and Aladdin gazed into her eyes, and took no thought for the luster of jewels. And while his mother went into the raptures over the splendor of the palace, Aladdin and Bedra Elbadur exchanged one look of love, a thing which none could purchase with all the treasures of the earth. And so it was with Aladdin and his bride. In the morning, Aladdin arose and donned a costly robe of royal magnificence. Then, when he had quaffed some delicious coffee flavored with ambergris, he ordered his steed and, with his mamelukes proceeding and following, rode to the Sultan's palace. As soon as the sultan was informed of his arrival, he came to meet him, and, having embraced and kissed him with a great affection, led him in and seated him on his right hand. And the nobles and the grandees and the high officials of the realm craved the privilege to approach him with the congratulations and blessings. When this was over, Aladdin having shown an exceeding graciousness to all, the sultan ordered breakfast to be brought. The tables were immediately laid, and all assembled ate and drank and conversed in a state of the utmost joy and happiness. Oh, my lord, said Aladdin to the sultan when they had finished their repast, I crave that thou wilt favor and honor me with thy presence of thy court to dine with thy well-beloved daughter, Medra el Badur, at her palace today. I entreat thy felicity to refuse not my request. And the sultan answered with a charming smile, Oh, my son, thou art too generous, but who could refuse thee anything? Accordingly, in due course, the sultan commanded his suite, and all rode forth with him and Aladdin to Bedra el Badur's palace. Great was the sultan's wonder and admiration when he saw the architecture and masonry of the structure, for even without, it was of all the rarest and most costly stone inwrought, with gold and silver and fashioned with consummate skill. But when he entered and viewed the entrance hall, his breath was snatched away from him, for he had never seen anything so magnificent in his life. At length, finding speech, he turned to the Grand Vizier and said, Verily, this is the greatest wonder of all. Hast thou ever, from first to last, beheld a palace like this? Oh, King of the Age, replied the Vizier gravely, there hath never been the like of this among the sons of men. It would take ten thousand workmen ten thousand days to construct it. Wherefore, as I told thy felicity, its completion in a single night is the work of sorcery. At this, the sultan was not pleased. 
Verily, Overseer, he replied, thou hast an envious heart, and thou speakest foolishly with thy mouth. At this moment, the lad had approached the sultan to conduct him through the rooms of the palace, and, as they went from one to another, the sultan was simply astounded at the wealth of metal and precious stones on every hand, and at the workmanship thereof. As for the vizier, he had said all that he had to say, and followed sullenly, nursing an evil heart. At length they came to the kiosk, which was a crowning work of jewel clusters, so rich and splendid that the treasuries of the earth must have been empty to fill them. The sultan nearly went from his wits in the effort to calculate the fabulous wealth of this apartment alone. His thoughts sped onwards through thousands, millions of gold pieces, and, losing itself in the thousands of millions, fell back staggering and distraught. For relief, he turned this way and that, gazing upon the niches, which were the most precious and wonderful of all. And in this way he came at length to the niche that had been left incomplete. This gave him speech. Alas, he said, relieved to find a flaw. This niche at least is imperfect. Then, turning to Aladdin, he inquired the reason of it. Yea, O oh my lord, answered Aladdin. Woe unto it, it is indeed unfinished, for the workmen clamored to be allowed to prepare themselves for the wedding festivities, and I had not the heart to say them nay, so they left this as thou seest it. Then, while Aladdin stood by, observing intently the effect of his words, the sultan stroked his beard in contemplation. Oh, my son, he said presently, the thought has come to me to complete it myself. I'm the head in eye, O king, cried Aladdin, and may thy life be prolonged. If thou wilt honor me thus, it will be a fitting perpetuation of thy memory in the palace of thy daughter. At this, the sultan, vastly pleased, summoned his jewelers and artificers, and empowering them to draw on the royal treasury for all they might require, he commanded them to complete the niche. Scarcely had the sultan finished his directions in this matter, when Bedra el Badur came to greet him, and his heart leapt with joy at her radiant face when he looked upon her. But then, when she had confided to him how happy she was, Aladdin led them into the banqueting hall where all was ready. One table was set apart for the sultan and Bedr el-Badur and Aladdin, and another for the sultan's suite. Then the sultan seated himself between Aladdin and his daughter, and the meal proceeded. The vivans were like ambrosia, and the wine like nectar, and the serving was done by eighty damsels, to each one of whom the moon might have curtsied, saying, Thy pardon, but I have stolen thy seat. And some of these damsels took musical instruments, and played and sang in a manner divine. The sultan's heart expanded, and he said, Verily, this is a feast to which a king might aspire. When they had eaten and emptied their cups, the chief mameluk opened the way to another room, where the most delicious fruits and sweetmeats were set out against the wealth of delicate flowers and greenery. Here the whole assembly lingered long in perfect delight, while upon these soft carpets the beauteous damsels danced to the sound of the sweetest music. Never had any of them, including the sultan himself, been so near to paradise before. Even the grand vizier shed his envy for the moment and forgot himself to joy. When the sultan's soul was well nigh weary with excessive enjoyment, he rose, and, bethinking himself of the unfinished niche, repaired to the kiosk to see how his workmen had progressed with their task. And when he came to them and inspected their work, he saw that they had only completed a small portion and that neither the execution nor the material, which was already exhausted, could compare with that of the other niches. Saying this, he bethought him of his reserved treasury and the jewels Aladdin had given him, 
Wherefore he commanded the workmen to draw upon these and continue their work. This they did, and in due course, the sultan returned to find that their work was still incomplete, determined to carry out his design at whatever cost. The sultan commanded his officials to seize all the jewels they could lay their hands on in the kingdom. Even this was done, and lo, still the niche was unfinished. It was not until late on the day thereafter that Aladdin found the jewels and the goldsmiths adding to the work of the last stone at their command. Hast thou jewels enough? he asked the chief artificer. Nay, O my master, he replied sadly. We have used all the jewels in the treasuries, yea, even in all the kingdom, and yet the work is only half finished. Take it all away, said Aladdin. Restore the jewels to their rightful owners. So they undid their work and returned the jewels to their treasuries and to the people from whom they had been taken. And they went to the sultan and told him. Unable to learn from them the exact reason for this, the sultan immediately called for his attendants and his horses and prepared to Aladdin's palace. Meanwhile, Aladdin himself, as soon as the workmen had left, retired to a private chamber and, taking out the lamp, rubbed it. Ask what thou wilt, said the slave, appearing on an instant. I desire thee to complete the niche which was left incomplete, answered Aladdin. I hear and obey, said the slave, and vanished. In a very short space of time, he returned, saying, Oh, my master, the work is complete. Then Aladdin arose and went to the kiosk and found that the slave had spoken truly. The niche was finished. As he was examining it, a Mameluk came to him and informed him that the sultan was at the gates. At this, Aladdin hastened to meet him. Oh, my son, cried the sultan as Aladdin greeted him. Why didst thou not let my jewelers complete the niche in the kiosk? Will that not have the palace whole? And Aladdin answered him. Oh, my lord, I left it unfinished in order to raise a doubt in thy mind, then dispel it, for if thy felicity doubted my ability to finish it, a glance at the kiosk as it now stands would make the matter plain. And he led the sultan to the kiosk and showed him the completed niche. The sultan's astonishment was now greater than ever. That Aladdin had accomplished in so short a space that which he himself could command neither workmen nor jewels sufficient to accomplish in many months. It filled him with wonder. He embraced Aladdin and kissed him, saying there were none like him in all the world. Then, when he had rested a while with his daughter Bedrail Badur, who was full of joy and happiness, the sultan returned to his own palace. Listening to Empath Studios' presentation of the Myths from Around the World, a special Dog Days of Podcasting contribution. Sound clips are from GarageBand and can be found in their samples library. The stories that we have shared can be found at Gutenberg.org. We can be found on Facebook on the Masterpiece Audio Theatre page, on Nimlas.org, or you can email us at j at jglangchance.com. This podcast is released under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives, 4.0 unported license. Thanks for joining us.